welcome to the Security in Context podcast. My name is Claire O'Brien. In this episode, we bring you a discussion on the Turkish invasion of northern Syria and its implications for the future of Kurdish movements in that country. The panel, hosted by Amherst College on February 25, 2020, discussed the history of Kurdish movement in Syria, specifically during the Syrian uprising, the political economic reasons behind the Turkish invasion, and the consequences of the Syrian conflict overall, particularly on IDPs and refugees. Speaking at the panel were Omar Dahi, Project Director of Security and Context, Professor Utku Balaban, a visiting professor of sociology at Amherst College, Professor Ahmed Tonak, a researcher with Security and Context, and visiting professor in the Department of Economics at UMass Amherst, and Professor Zumre Kutlu, lecturer in government at Smith College specializing in refugee politics, migration, and humanitarianism in Turkey and the Middle East. The event was organized and moderated by Chris Dole, professor of anthropology at Amherst College. First up, Omar Dahi providing a brief background on the Kurdish movements in Syria. Great to be here. I'd like to thank Chris uh, for organizing this and the Center for Humanistic Inquiry for hosting us. Um, what I thought I'd do is be sort of the warm-up act and try to set the context for um, the, the discussion and uh, subsequent sort of analysis of what's happening uh, from a regional perspective by giving you a sense of um, the Syrian conflict and its complexity and uh, a basic overview of Kurdish movement for self-determination within the Syrian conflict. Um, there's a lot to say, and I'm going to try to cover some points in, in these brief moments that I have. But basically, um, the Kurds in Syria, uh, historically or over the last century, number <coughs> are about 8% of the Syrian population. The estimates are accurate estimates are really difficult to achieve for a variety of reasons, uh, not least of which is the politicization of uh, the Kurdish presence in Syria and the suppression uh, of Kurdish uh, self-determination by the Syrian Ba'ath Party historically. Um, his, over the past, um, particularly since the early 20th century, there was increasing um, uh, movement of Kurds from what is now southern Turkey to northern Syria, and a lot of these were in the aftermath of rebellions uh, undertaken by Kurds after which they were expelled. And most of them moved to areas that are now in the northeast of Syria. I, I don't know if we're going to have a map uh, up in later, but I can refer to it later once we have it on. Uh, if you have a sense of the geography, it's everything <coughs> basically uh, east of the Euphrates River and up to the northern border of Syria, and it includes areas such as Aleppo and the outskirts of Aleppo. Um, so most of this Kurdish presence is in the northeast of Syria, although over time uh, lots of Kurds moved to the two big cities of Aleppo and Damascus. Um, from the perspective of ethnographers, many of those Kurds may not necessarily be counted as Kurds in the northeast of Syria because there's a lot of intermarriage and second and third generation Kurds who are now much more integrated into the mainstream of Syrian Arab society. Okay, that's this is not actually, you know. Yeah, good this will map, probably confuse you more than my talk. But <laughs> basically, it, it most was, of the presence map, is in know. this area. <laughs> most of the, the Kurdish presence is in this area, and this area is known in Syria for being the breadbasket of the country. So you the stole Syrian, my show. <laughs> uh, the Syrian um, Ba'ath Party uh, combined. Uh, essentially Arab nationalist ideology with state socialist model of development and particularly agrarian socialism. So there was a significant uh, period in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s of agrarian reform and um, the subsequent governments that came to Syria, not just the Ba'ath Party, but even before the Ba'ath Party came to Syria, all saw the Kurdish presence as a threat as a threat to the uh, Syrian Arab identity of the country. Uh, from their perspective, historically, uh, the historic Syria was under attack, 
and in the early 20th century saw it lose big parts of its territory in the case of Lebanon, in the case of Palestine, in the case of Iskandaron, which is now Hatay. So from the perspective of the Syrian Arab nationalists, there was a significant loss of the territory that they thought of as historic Syria. And this inflow of Kurdish migration uh, was adding to that threat. And so their response was to suppress the Kurdish identity, to deprive hundreds of thousands of Kurds from citizenship. And there was the infamous 1962 census that essentially made uh, Kurds who had been living there for a long time uh, stateless. Um, uh, as of 2009, they were estimated of being around 300,000 Kurds. Um, the agrarian socialist model also uh, basically um, reappropriated lots of land owned by Kurds and gave it to Arab, Syrian Arab farmers. So the model of development plus the politics uh, served to try and um, deny, I guess, Kurdish uh, national identity or ethnic identity. It wasn't, it was a nationalist oppression. I mean, they weren't oppressed by and large. This is just roughing the edges, but by and large it was, um, uh, if you gave up your Kurdish identity, you could be accepted into the mainstream of Arab nationalism. It wasn't targeted as individual Kurds, but as an ethnic group, as a, as a, national, as a national group. Um, so within this context, there was a long history of struggle uh, over the years. Uh, politics in Syria, particularly after the Ba'ath Party came to power and the Assad government came to power in 1970, the Assad regime within the Ba'ath Party, uh, worked on really suppressing any form of political dissent, whether it's Kurdish or otherwise. So within the context of Syrian politics, there was very uh, little uh, scope for independent organizing, um, political organizing, whether they're ethnic-based or programmatic political parties were suppressed. The Syrian regime, in the words of a political scientist Lisa Wadin, had killed politics, which means uh, which is to say that they had really suppressed any form of independent political life. It's, of course, well known for being an outlier in terms of centralization of power, um, in terms of the impunity with which the security services and the brutality with which the security services and the intelligence services reigned in the country. Um, the, for our purposes, the biggest sort of... Uh, stirrings of Kurdish movements for uh, demanding their rights happened in 2004 in a regional context where many Kurds saw uh, demands and increasing autonomy for Kurds, uh, particularly in the 90s and 2000s in, in Iraq. Uh, and there was an uprising that was uh, quite brutally suppressed by the Syrian uh, <coughs> security services, which led to a series of decrees that further um, curtailed Kurdish rights, and there was a presidential decree in 2009 that essentially uh, prohibited Kurds from owning land in, in many areas, or even renting land in many areas in, in Syria. So when the uprising started, and uh, the Syri Syrian uprising started in 2011, there was quite a bit of movement within the Kurdish areas to assert their uh, uh, national, their ethnic rights, there was a movement for self-determination, and there was an attempt to uh, coordinate uh, with other Syrian opposition groups uh, that were protesting against the Syrian government. Uh, but that quickly, this attempt to uh, really be part of the Syrian uprising uh, became complicated due to the complexity of the Syrian uprising itself, which quickly became immersed in various types of other conflicts. And I'll quickly go through what those other conflicts were. So there was, of course, the Syrian uprising itself. But then Syria became uh, quite quickly a, a, a place where uh, there was a confrontation between pro-Western, uh, quote unquote, pro-Western and anti-Western forces. So uh, the Syrian government and Iran and Hezbollah call themselves as part of the resistance, anti-imperialist axis that uh, is opposed to Israel and is opposed to US policy in the region on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have the Gulf, uh, Arabian Gulf states, 
the Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, uh, Qatar, and Turkey. Um, particularly for the Arabian Gulf countries, they saw Syria as the weak link in this axis. And in the lead up to the uprising, they had tried to peel Syria away from this resistance axis through investments. And after the war started, it was through essentially trying to make Syria a battlefield where uh, it would be torn away from that. There would be regime change to a more uh, <coughs> Western-oriented government. Uh, what made this even more complicated is within the pro-Western axis, there were splits. And there were quickly splits between Qatar and Turkey on the one hand and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates on the other. And these different pro-Western forces were um, uh, supporting different groups that were fighting each other. But by and large, most of those groups and most of the Syrian opposition forces that were supported by external and regional countries were hostile to the Kurdish uh, movements. And so the Kurdish movements were really stuck between uh, the hostility of the Syrian government, which was, you know, as I mentioned before, the uprising, but also the, um, the attacks uh, and, and uh, a series of uh, human rights abuses and uh, ethnic cleansing uh, attempts that they were subjected to by forces that were primarily backed by Turkey and other um, uh, Gulf countries. Um, so on top of these layers, of course, came the fight against ISIS and the establishment of ISIS in, or declaration of ISIS in 2014 and the uh, essentially um, increasing ties between Kurdish forces and the U.S. Army in its effort to push back against ISIS. And the presence of U.S. forces in uh, the aftermath of ISIS and the pushback against ISIS allowed the Kurdish movement for the first time to feel a sense of protection from these different forces, the Syrian government and the other you know, uh, array of forces that were really, um, uh, they felt, were, were trying to, to push back against the, the sort of uh, autonomous region that they had, that they had established. Um, so in the lead up to the uh, Turkish invasion, there was uh, a lot of discussion about what would be the future of the Kurdish movement, um, what would be its role in vis-a-vis uh, -vis the peace settlement. And many of these discussions are ongoing, but part of what the Kurds found themselves in today as historically was being a victim or being a uh, essentially um, subjected to geopolitical forces that were squeezing them from different sides. Um, and uh, a lot of what might happen next will really depend on the outcome, perhaps, of this geopolitical game that's being played out in the country. So I'll stop here. Next to speak is Utku Balaban on the complex political economic reasons that motivated Turkey's invasion. Thank you very much for, for this opportunity uh, and welcome. Uh, in this presentation today, I would like to share some of the key domestic factors within Turkey that motivated the Islamist government to invade Syria. Um, I believe um, this invasion has two military purposes. Uh, first, um, Islamist government of Turkey intends to bring an end to the control of the Kurdish movement or the northern region of Syria, uh, which uh, Omarion, like you know, briefly you know, like, talked about. Second, Turkey's Islamist government wants to provide a shield uh, for the jihadist groups or the opposition against Assad regime in order to prolong the civil war in Syria. Uh, today, I would like to focus on the domestic factors related to Islamist motivations uh, to attack Kurds. Uh, and I believe we can tackle this issue um, at three different levels, namely Turkey's assimilation uh, policies against Kurds, defined as the state interest of Turkey, political challenges Islamists face in Turkey at the domestic level, uh, and the third level is an economic decline since the early 2010s that urged Islamists to seek 
solutions abroad. First of all, um, let's briefly talk about this. Um, uh, first, of the state interest. To assimilate the Kurds within the Turkish ethnicity has been for long um, a state policy in Turkey. Uh, Kurds are denied their basic human rights, such as public education in Kurdish, uh, is a part of this uh, broader assimilation policy. Uh, however, this is not an easy task uh, on the part of the Turkish state for three reasons. Uh, first, um, Kurds account for no less than one-fifth of the population in Turkey. This is a sizable population and it's simply too difficult to assimilate. Uh, second, Kurds geographically outnumber other ethnicities in the eastern part of the country, as known as the uh, northern, northern Kurdistan. Third, Kurds live not only in Turkey, but also in Syria, Iraq, and Iran. This last factor in particular turns uh, Turkish, state, Turkish state's assimilationist policies within Turkey into a major component of its diplomatic, geopolitical, and military strategies in general. So it's not just about the assimilation of the uh, Kurds, it has a broader impact on the, on the geopolitical uh, role in like Turkey plays in the world politics. Uh, in every single diplomatic context, uh, representatives of the Turkish state pay the utmost attention to prevent any type of international recognition of, for, for the Kurds. So Turkey always you know, acts as a barrier, you know, like you know, in um, any type of you know, inter international fora you could ever imagine. Uh, second, Turkey takes part in any geopolitical pact or alliance only if the existing uh, institutional infrastructure privileges Turkey's claims over Kurds' demands. And third, Turkey has been pursuing uh, cross-border military operations for many decades, especially after the uh, Kurdish movement established military camps uh, within Iraq, in, uh, in northern uh, Iraq, Iraq. In other words, Turkey's invasion of northern Syria is almost a mere reflection of the traditional state policy, which has been practically in effect since the proclamation of the Turkish Republic in the 1920s. So it's just, you know, I mean, sort of a result of this long, uh, this term, the policy orientations of the Turkish state. Um, but there is one curious question. Uh, Islamists came to power in Turkey in the early 2000s with the promise of making peace with the Kurdish movement. In fact, the same government began to pursue peace negotiations in the early 2010s. Uh, this was the moment when Kurds were at least seemingly closest to an agreement with the Turkish state. Uh, however, these negotiations came to an end in 2015 and was followed by a brutal assault on Kurdish cities in Turkey. In these operations, government forces used military-rated equipment, uh, including helicopters, tanks, artillery. Dozens of civilians, including the elderly, died. According to some estimates, more than 400,000 of people basically were displaced, uh, like from their own let's say, towns, uh, villages, and cities. On a personal note, uh, parents from Turkey, uh, including here, including myself, signed a petition to protest, protest this operation. Consequently, I was unconstitutionally dismissed my, uh, from my tenure position, and my colleagues basically had to quit their jobs. So this is the primary reason why I'm here you know, at Amherst College right now. As you see uh, the picture on the screen, this military operation totally annihilated some of the major Kurdish cities in Turkey. Um, in a sense, this was not just a return to, but also an expansion of the earlier repressive policies of the Turkish state. To the best of my knowledge, uh, Turkish state has not used artillery and or tanks against the civilian settlements since the 1930s at this scale. In short, the invasion of the Kurdish territory in Syria was only the next step uh, of the general assault on Kurds by the Islamist government in harmony with the long-lived state policy of assimilation uh, of Kurds. Now the next question is what changed the Islamist government's mind 
the, in Turkey? The answer, uh, I believe, is relatively simple. Uh, Islamists lost the majority in the parliament for the first time in June 2015 <coughs> election, since 2002. The most important reason for this uh, defeat was the fact that Kurdish party disproportionately expanded its, num its number of seats uh, in this election. In other words, Islamists <coughs> lost the election to the Kurds. Islamist response was to, <coughs> to use the suspicious murder of two police officers uh, allegedly by the Kurdish movement, we don't know like, who, did, who did it, as a pretext to launch an all-encompassing uh, all assault in multiple Kurdish cities. Uh, in the meantime, they used a loophole in the constitution, Turkish constitution, to renew the elections. In the second election in November 2015, remember the first one was in June 2015, the second one uh, was in November 2015, Islamists raised their vote share from roughly 40% to 50% by provoking the nationalist sentiments among the electorate. This was the point when Islamists gave up on their claim to resolve the Kurdish question and turned their faces to the ultra-nationalist electorate in Turkey. This ideological term was closely associated with their belief that Islamists could not expand their support among the Kurdish electorate in a further, and the Kurdish opposition would eventually prove decisive for the destiny of Islamism in Turkey. Now, this graph on the screen illustrates the share of the households receiving means-tested social assistance provided by the government and the vote share of the Islamists in the cities of Turkey for 2015. As you see, the relationship uh, between the blue circle is surprisingly in a, an inverse one. Um, in other words, you know, like the uh, higher, let's say, households, you know, like get, you know, like means uh, tested social assistance, the lower the uh, vote share of the Islamists. But you know, it, sh it was it's supposed to be like the other way around, right? Um, the reason for this surprising relationship is mostly the outliers within the blue circle uh, in the top left corner of this graph. These are the Kurdish cities. Kurds are on average poorer than the Turks. And there's a long history, you know, like, you know, basically leading to this you know, like, consequence. Uh, accordingly, the share of the beneficiary households in the total population of the Kurdish citizens is higher than, the, than in the Turkish cities. However, the very same cities are where Islamist uh, movement is simply weakest. The reason why I'm showing this graph is to emphasize the, the fact that Islamists were convinced at some point that they could not buy out, quote-unquote, politically motivated Kurds, no matter how poor you know, they are. It's a common knowledge that Islamists use the government-funded means-tested social assistance to establish clientelist political networks, and accordingly to muster political support among the poor, this tactic simply did not work in the case of the Kurds. The distance of the politically motivated Kurdish electorate from Islamist drives from another simple fact. Kurdish movement now supports liberal values, such as gender equality, environmentalism, and social justice. Once the values gain currency among the Kurds, Islamists will lose their support among apolitical Kurds. Uh, in fact, the electoral success of the Kurdish movement poses an existential threat to, Islam, Islam, uh, to Islamism both among uh, Kurds and in Turkey at large. The military offensive against the Kurds within Turkey in 2015, I believe, provoked protests among the Turks at a limited level. As I said earlier, we were among the very few who dared protesting this operation and paid the price. However, it was not just the fear factor that prevented Turks from protesting the Islamist government's inhumane treatment of the Kurds. It was also about the fact that ultra-nations, as well as some segments of the secular middle class, were and are simply racist. Especially in the case of the secular middle class, the hatred against the Kurds was strong enough to overcome their dislike for, uh, they say, or fear from an Islamist uh, Sharia regime. Furthermore, as the secular middle class lost ground in Turkish politics with the advent of Islamism to power, they were seeking a common ground with the Islamists now in power so that they could sustain some of the class-related privileges they lost, let's say, in the 2000s. <coughs> in fact, the murder of the Kurdish civilians in 2015, I believe, 
was the start of a fresh relationship between Islamists and the secular petty bourgeoisie. Based on the tombs of the civilians, this test alliance, I believe, is the pact shaping the main reflexes of the Turkish state. The third and last motivation of Turkey's invasion of Syria is related to the uh, economic decline of the domestic economy. As you see in the graph, Turkish GDP per capita in US dollar terms has been declining since 2013. Factors behind this decline are obviously beyond the scope of this presentation, but one detail concerning this issue is the relatively fast growth rates in, uh, in the previous decade. That is the, two, <coughs> the 2000s. Uh, this fast growth was at least partially the outcome of the political instability and wars in the countries and region, regions neighboring Turkey. In this context, trade with war-torn Iraq in the, in the 2000s, and in particular, uh, in particular with Iraqi Kurdistan, was instrumental for the fast growth of the Turkish export again in this particular decade. In fact, the basic formula is first to surplus wages in Turkey to, be, uh, the Turkey to benefit from the consequent misery of Turkey's working class in the global race to the bottom, to sell the manufactured goods and construction politics, uh, projects to politically unstable countries. In other words, Turkish economy under the Islamist rule needs political inst instability in the Middle East. Uh, uh, to grow economically. I call this strategy petty imperialism. It's a form of imperialism, if you will, because Turkey's military conflicts are motivated by the economy's need for markets and resources. It's petty because Turkey is a middle-range power that could take part only in regional military operations. The petty imperialist motivations behind Turkey's invasion in Syria, I think, account for one factor that re relates Islamist hatred uh, of the Kurds to their animosity toward the Assad regime. Islamist original expectation was a quick victory in Syria uh, by the jihadist forces that would upend the post-2008 economic stagnation in, in the Turkish economy as Syria would be governed by a puppet regime to be controlled by Turkish Islamists and contribute to the growth of the Turkish economy in a similar way as Iraqi Kurdistan did in the early 2000s, but only at a larger scale. This plan did not work out. Then Turkish Islamists downsized their imperialist project and focused on the colonization of northern Syria by using the Kurdish control as a, as a pretext to justify their military operations and invasion. One immediate uh, project closely related to this adventure was the construction of the settlements for the millions of the Syrian refugees in Turkey. Uh, most of these refugees came from non-Kurdish regions of Syria, but Islamists uh, plan to forcefully displace them to, to the Kurdish region of Syria and change the demography uh, of the region. Uh, as this plan entails the aforementioned construction projects, it will serve the, as a pseudo <coughs> venue to generate income to the business groups favored by Islamists. In the picture on the screen, uh, we see, uh, let's say, the, uh, this aerial, you know, like, you know, this aerial picture shows Diyarbakir, the biggest uh, 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 Kurdish city in Turkey, before the military operations. And on the right-hand side of this, uh, let's say, slide, we see the uh, si situation after the operations. As you see, uh, the, like, you know, uh, right-hand side of this you know, area, thanks, Ahmed, so it's a total annihilation. Uh, after the total destruction of certain neighborhoods of Diyarbakir, the biggest uh, the government quickly rebuilt those neighborhoods without any attention to its older architectural context. This is the decided new settlements so, or the houses in Diyarbakir. In the wake of the murder of the civilians, this was an attempt to murder the collective memory of the Kurds. Only time will tell if this bold adventure will succeed. What we know for sure is though its success means the murder of many more people in the region. Thank you very much. Our third speaker is Ahmed Tonak, speaking on the history and current state of Kurdish movement in Syria and Turkey. Instead of speculating the future of the Kurdish uh, political movements, although I will do that inevitably in passing, 
but maybe more after the, this little presentation, I uh, focus on factual information uh, about some of the Kurdish movements and parties in the Middle East in the context of Syrian crisis and also the current Turkish invasion of Syria. I think this is necessary uh, because the U.S. media usually pays almost no attention to the organizational structure of Kurdish movements and Kurdish political parties and ideological aspects of these movements and these parties. And we just basically see them as a couple of uh, names. And Abdullah Öcalan names obviously cited quite often and PKK in the context of Turkey occasionally obviously referred to. But beyond that, uh, even you know, avid reader of New York Times uh, can get uh, serious you know, depth of these uh, movements and political parties and especially the way they are related to each other and occasionally hostile to each other. So in my view, uh, the absence of uh, even this elementary you know, factual information I will going to present here briefly uh, what we have, uh, especially uh, in the United States, in foreign policy making you know, circles, rather inadequate analysis uh, of the situation and developments in Syria and Turkey. And on that basis, obviously, uh, most of the policies you know, suggested uh, fail and do not succeed even in terms of their own uh, goals. Uh, this is a map by the way, uh, from Wikipedia. And I just use this map uh, to indicate you know, how complex uh, the relationship among different Kurdish parties and movements and also how varied themselves <coughs> in terms of you know, quantities, in terms of also ideological uh, orientations and the way they relate to each other. And so when you look at you know, this map, actually you can't you know, figure out unless you, know, you specifically read and you know, expand the map and everything. But I think it shows the complexity uh, of the situation. However, uh, I could use only two circles here uh, to start uh, with the uh, organizations and you know, movements and parties, especially in Syria and Turkey. Uh, the first one is this one, uh, KCK. With, stands for Kurdistan Communities Union in English, and, and established in 2005, as uh, the map indicates, uh, original name is uh, KKK, and then changed in 2007 uh, KCK. This is an umbrella organization, but when you look at the map, uh, unless you read you know, this you know, line, uh, you think that basically this is the major organization and you know, everything evolves around it. On the contrary, actually, the very founder of this organization, which is an umbrella organization, is PKK, which is the Kurdish you know, political party in, in Turkey, uh, stands for Kurdish Workers uh, Party, and established you know, much earlier. And then there is obviously a process uh, to eventually uh, form this kind of umbrella organization as developments in Turkey, as well as Syria and other parts of the region uh, evolve. So let's uh, move to the second one. Okay, uh, so this is, uh, as you see, slightly simpler one. Uh, this is the map, by the way, produced by one of the mainstream think tanks in the United States Council on uh, Foreign Relations. Uh, however, original map uh, that I use, uh, I think missing you know, this you know, party in Iraq, uh, probably currently they focus on more Syria and you know, Turkey. Uh, what happened basically, uh, in terms of these organizations, the way they relate to each other, uh, we should go back uh, the formation of PKK and especially you know, its leader, Abdullah Öcalan, and where this uh, oppositional movement within Turkey uh, to central government of Turkey uh, originally you know, started. Uh, Abdullah Öcalan himself uh, is a product of 1968 movement, uh, university movement and radical student movement in Turkey. So he was himself radicalized during the 1960s, late 60s. And, and obviously there was a long tradition of you know, uh, Kurdish movement before uh, Öcalan, before PKK. But it takes a lot of time, I don't want to go there. And let's start with you know, Öcalan. In uh, 1971 we had a military coup. Uh, almost every 10 years we had military coup in Turkey. 
So this was the coup, by the way, when I was finishing the university and I was personally detained. And then many of the comrades of, you know, Öcalan, you know, and ourselves, you know, detained and killed and tortured. Uh, this was a, one of the sagas. And then 1980, we had another coup. Before that, 1960, we had another coup. And then there is a recent one, attempted coup. So this is a country of, you know, military coups, as you see. Uh, so Öcalan obviously responded to those, you know, movements and the oppression. And as a Kurd himself, and he was born, if I'm not mistaken, in 1947, so a couple of years you know, older than myself, uh, and uh, observed the fact that actually until uh, that point, uh, Turkish left uh, was organizing uh, itself and trying to mobilize you know, people on the basis of you know, very traditional type of uh, radical activities. And coming from the region, the Kurdish region, and observing you know, Kurdish realities, how, how oppressed you know, they themselves. And he, more or less, you know, I think early 1970s, decided that this Kurdish movement that he wanted to initiate uh, must have a different character. Uh, go to the region and mobilize people, persuade people actually through face-to-face -face interaction, uh, rather than having you know, initially and uh, centrally uh, uh, powerful organization and then doing you know, some activities and you know, large mobilization and then eventually uh, disappearing from the scene as happened by the way many of the Turkish leftist you know, movements uh, at the time and even you know, later. So I think he was quite uh, careful in designing this movement and then basing uh, uh, the movement and the political party eventually uh, that kind of face-to-face -face, uh, interaction and really uh, mobilizing you know, local people so to speak. And then this uh, movement started, I think, 1975, and then the party eventually formally uh, formed itself in uh, 1978 in Diyarbakir. And essentially, there were two observations. Uh, and they, uh, they said that we, we are oppressed by a colonial state. So they, they uh, conceptualize uh, the nature of oppression on Kurds uh, by the Turkish governments. Uh, decades since the foundation of Turkish Republic uh, uh, as a kind of you know, colonial oppression. So there was some sort of influence of even your reading, you know, Fanon, and so on that basis, you know, justifying actual violence and, you know, military uh, parts of the political party eventually established. Uh, and there is one aspect. The other aspect is that uh, when you... Uh, develop this uh, anti-colonial struggle against the Turkish you know, government, and you have to have a vision, you know, what exactly you're going to do after you know, winning this struggle, so to speak, and that has some sort of you know, socialist you know, character uh, at the time. The political structure of the uh, party was quite Leninist, and so, I mean, one may call even, you know, Sovietic at the time, which means that, you know, rather centrally organized and highly disciplined and organization, and eventually started, you know, military uh, uh, action against, you know, uh, Turkish government. Uh, I, I think uh, their, their first uh, military action was in 1984, and then that point on, uh, uh, they expanded and, you know, became rather, you know, uh, uh, powerful, you know, within Turkey. Uh, but 1998, Erdogan uh, was uh, captured by uh, Turkish government with the help of, you know, CIA. Uh, since then, he's been in prison. And so there were a lot of negotiations. Some of them, you know, would uh, refer to between Turkish government and, and APO, uh, which is a short uh, 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 nickname, I guess, you know, for Abdullah Öcalan, uh, we say. Uh, but during the uh, prison years, uh, Öcalan uh, actually started even before he was arrested uh, he deviated from original Marxist-Leninist uh, 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 subscription and, and then and start a substantial amount of you know, reading. Uh, and he was especially influenced by Murray Bookchin. And uh, Murray Bookchin, as you know, is an American uh, uh, radical you know, thinker, developed this idea of you know, social ecology. And then uh, during the negotiation with Turkish government and also observing you know, what's happening you know, in the region, Öcalan came about uh, this idea that you know, uh, the Kurdish movements throughout the region 
need a kind of an umbrella organization with a vision which is not socialist uh, in the Marxist sense, and however, you know, egalitarian, and especially in terms of you know, uh, women and you know, gender equality and concern with uh, environmental uh, issues, and, but at the same time, uh, rejecting this old-fashioned independent you know, Kurdish state, even within Turkey or any other you know, countries uh, having a larger, you know, a large uh, Kurdish population. So opposing this you know, nation state, opposing this uh, independent you know, Kurdish nation state as an alternative to the current situation, he came up with this idea that uh, Kurds within the region, uh, including Turkey, Syria, Iran, and Iraq, uh, must have some sort of democratic, confederal, uh, political uh, setup. Uh, this democratic confederalism uh, as an idea comes from uh, Murray Wickshin. And the idea is, uh, let me just you know, cite you know, one of the uh, uh, publications, uh, is a system of popularly elected administrative councils allowing local communities to exercise autonomous control over their assets while linking to other communities via a network of confederal councils. So decisions usually made by communes or you know, towns and cities. And this is the idea, uh, first time found its chance to be implemented in Syria. Uh, so therefore, uh, this uh, eastern part of you know, northern Syria, uh, what Kurds call you know, Rojava, uh, I, I think is quite important as a kind of uh, uh, laboratory uh, uh, of this idea, first time you know, implemented uh, uh, by Kurds, uh, not as an independent you know, Kurdish you know, national state, but is a, uh, it's a kind of you know, egalitarian society. And this, uh, uh, this experiment uh, threatened, obviously, Turkish government, given the fact that uh, we have you know, more than 20 million you know, Kurds in Turkey, and there is this uh, ongoing struggle against, against Turkish you know, government, so obviously this is a major aspiration for them uh, to, uh, to look at you know, this experiment as long as you know, they're <coughs> successful, so to speak, and then joining them, their forces and doing something uh, like this in Turkey. So that, I think, irritates the Turkish government immensely. So there are all kinds of reasons, economic reasons, political reasons, you know, some of them you know, to mention uh, to understand why Turkey invades uh, Syria and be this kind of you know, militarically, militaristically, you know, you know, harsh uh, actions, you know, it takes, but also I think there is an element of uh, what's happening in Rojava as an experimental, you know, social egalitarian society, first time formed by Kurds, uh, to be as an example, uh, aspiring, you know, model, so to speak, for Turkish Kurds. I think that is an important factor to keep in mind. Finally, Zumre Kutlu speaks on the various dimensions of the IDP and refugee crisis in the region. All these conflicts and all the things that my colleagues mentioned created millions of displaced people. And I will try to mention that part of the story because, uh, I mean, Utku mentioned the economic reasons and Ahmed mentioned the uh, political and Kurdish movement and, and its importance. Apparently, there is another reason that Turkey invaded northern Syria. And uh, the, the very reason, together with those, is to get rid of the uh, Syrian refugees who are now 3.6 million uh, in, in Turkey only. Of course, I want to open a parenthesis before going into the Kurdish refu uh, Syrian refugee issue. There are lots of Kurdish IDPs in their internally displaced population, unfortunately didn't get the attention of the international community that much. Even for Turkey, I can talk about over a million of the population, but also for the other parts of the Syria, there are lots of internally displaced population. But for now, what I want to focus on is the ones are the ones who crossed the borders, who got the attention of the international community and also the reason that Turkey uh, invaded northern Syria. I mean, uh, equally important reason. So uh, I think, according to UNHCR, the last data shows that over 7 million uh, Syrians are living across the world now. And I mean, more than half of that population now lives in Turkey. It comes with the political and economic costs, of course. And 
as soon as I mean uh, Syrians started to move to Turkey, the expectation of the Turkish government was not like that. You know, they thought that they were the guests, and they don't expect that that many millions will come to the country. So they were expected, and and also they were proud hosts of these populations. But as the time passed, and as the conflict started to be much more, I mean, permanent, what they noticed that they cannot solve this situation with this guest discourse. They need to find a solution for that. But unfortunately, Utku mentioned that, and also Ahmed mentioned that the movements, the Kurdish movement, as well as the economy, I mean, went hand in hand with all these conflicts and all these situations. So the cost was losing the votes, you know, the increasing discrimination and xenophobia towards the Syrian population. So safe zone was not the new idea, it's not a new idea, but especially after uh, Erdogan lost the local elections recently, safe zone discussion came to an important, I mean, hot ag agenda in the, in the uh, Turkish politics. So for understanding the situation, I think we have a couple of questions that we need to ask you. First of all, what's a safe zone? Apparently, I mean, the, the word implies what it means. You know, it's a conflict-free zone for the civilians. Apparently, it is expected that it will be safe and no one will have any negative effects of the conflict which is happening all around themselves. And it is not a new thing, and it happened, and it offered, and also it implemented, tried to be implemented in different parts of the world. But unfortunately, when you look at the experiences, we don't see any good examples of it. When I will say the countries that the safe zones are established, I mean, there, there will be no need for talking about the details. You know, the first one is Bosnia. The second one is Rwanda. The third one is Sri Lanka. So I can count it. The, I mean, the best example, I mean, quote unquote, that is discussed, the, the bad among the worst, you know, I mean, is the northern, um, uh, Iraq example, which is still under the discussion, and I cannot say and I cannot give the examples as the best as the best one. And lots of civilians were hurt, and it was it was a target for the militias, and they used it as the using the resources and aids. So the offers of the proposal of uh, Erdogan for preparing a safe zone in northern I mean northern Syria apparently is not a humanitarian one. It is. It has political reason and it will have political consequences. So what will be the consequences? My friends already mentioned, so I will not, I mean, give too much time for that. The first one will be the ethnic re-engineering of the population in that area. There were Arabs and Kurds in the area, but when Erdogan was talking about that safe zone, he is definitely mentioning that and, and also spelling out, going back and sending back three million Syrians to that area. I mean, three million Syrians means a lot. You know, you are building a new country, a new area. And, and he also offers the Europeans that you, this area, this safe zone area, if you support it, you can also send the Syrians uh, I mean, in your territory to this area. So it's a way of getting, getting rid of the Syrian population all around the world. So it's, it's, it's the way that Erdogan proposes this idea of safe zone. A couple of months ago in, in, in the UN meeting, he was also coming up with the safe zone idea as if it's a development project. You know, he was, he was like talking about 140 villages and, and 40 towns and with, with lots of hospitals, I mean, schools and everything. So as I said, it, it has definitely <coughs> a political reason under that, together with the getting rid of the Kurdish population but also it adds up the, the solution of getting rid of the Syrian refugees in the Turkish territory. You know, they, they don't want it. So um, apart from this uh, Syrian refugees issue in Turkey, another humanitarian catastrophe that we need to mention when we are talking about the safe zone. Now, unfortunately, Turkish border is closed. So uh, when we think about the conflict in Idlib, uh, more than one million population, I mean, more than one million people had to move because of the conflicts that has been going on, you know. As the regime forces moved to the north, you know, they are stuck between the Turkish border and with the regime forces. So, I mean, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. And everyone, and they cannot trust anyone. They cannot do anything. It's a mix of, mixed group of people. There are lots of people from different, I mean, uh, political groups. So 
I mean, the only thing that should be done now is to open the borders. But apparently, we're thinking about what Erdogan is doing. It is, I mean, it sounds like an, I don't know, just a hope, <laughs> I should say. I don't know what will happen. So um, I think um, another point that, that we can talk about when we are talking about the Syrian population is uh, Erdogan is not waiting for the establishment of the safe zone. The deportations started even after the local elections, even before them. The things that are underlining by the research agencies and the news agencies and especially by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch that there are nearly 400,000 Syrians who are deported to this area, the conflict area. And it is not a voluntary, I mean, leave. It is, they are not going there voluntarily. So it's a forcibly deportation. And, and, uh, and also, which shows that it's, I mean, Turkey is now is not is violating international human rights. I mean, these are the things that I will I, I wanted to mention uh, most of all. But uh, there are also discussions that we can talk about the conditions of the Syrian refugees in Turkey. Whether the Syrians do want to go back to that area, which apparently is not the case, because the safe zone is not a safe zone. I mean, no one can guarantee that nothing will happen to that population. They will not know who will control the safe zone, the proposed safe zone, who will be the power, who will be the, I don't know, the controlling power, the army, and, and everything. So everything is, in a, is a big question mark, and, and, and the safe zone is not safe for anyone. And that wraps up this episode of the Security in Context podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening. For more content, please visit us at securityincontext.com. Goodbye.